Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, the rest of you, go ahead and get your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter number 3. <clears throat> we are continuing study we began last week looking at the life of David. And like I told you, uh, for the first five weeks, we're not even going to talk about David. Uh, we're going to talk about other people in his life that led up to his life. Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, I, I love uh, historical novels. Anyone else like reading historical novels? I love reading about, I read one uh, last week um, called The Wager. Uh, it's about a, a English uh, naval battalion group, I don't know, but five ships, five men of war who during the, the 1720s were trying to capture a Spanish ship full of gold, and so they sailed around Cape Horn uh, to try to get to the Pacific to catch the Spanish, and one of the ships, the Wager, uh, wrecked in the Cape and ended up on an island uh, right off the coast of Chile called Wager, it's Wager Island, uh, you can look it up on Google Maps, and they were stranded there for three years. Uh, they had, I mean, and it was a desolate island. They had very little to eat, so they ended up eating each other before they finally made their own boat out of shipwrecked stuff and sailed home. Uh, and it's an incredible story. Uh, and I, I enjoy stuff like that. I read one last year about uh, General Custer and learned that General Custer was not the best guy that we were taught about in school. But the one I want to talk about today is uh, it's a book I read last year called The Good Shepherd. Uh, there was a movie made about it a couple years ago. I think it, I think it's on Apple TV or something called The Greyhound. Tom Hanks is in it, and you know anything Tom Hanks is in is, is awesome. Um, I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book. Uh, now it tells a story of the uh, of the Battle of the Atlantic during World War II. Uh, some naval destroyers were commissioned to lead merchant ships. You know, they weren't leading, they weren't taking a convoy of soldiers, they weren't taking uh, anything, they were taking merchant ships across the Atlantic into Europe because, and they had to guide them because, of course, the German U-boats were patrolling the Atlantic and were destroying any kind of ship, any uh, private ship or, or naval ship. And so they were commissioned to lead this group of, through the Atlantic, over to Europe. Now, they're told they're commanding all by the Navy, the Admiral of the Navy, that you know their, their job was to protect the merchant ships, but if it came down to it and they had to leave the merchant ships to save the naval ships, leave the merchant ships. And so they're, they're taking these, uh, these, these boats across there, trying to take goods and weapons to Europe, and during the journey, of course, they are attacked and hounded by a group of German U-boats. Now, one commander, Captain Krauss, uh, he was the one who the book is based on, and he was the leader of the convoy. He made a decision that no matter what they faced, no matter what happened, they were not going to abandon those merchant ships. They were not going to abandon their commission. And so he, he stayed up for 48 hours talking to other ships and dealing with these U-boats and making plans and attacks and doing whatever he could to destroy these U-boats and get his, his, his commission all the way across. Now, eventually they do defeat the U-boats the and they lead the convoy safely to the destination. At many times during the battle, 
the naval ships had the opportunity to leave their merchant ships on their own and go and be done, save themselves. But Captain Krauss decided that no matter what happened, they were not going to abandon their post. Now, there's something inspiring uh, about leaders like that, uh, leaders who put other people's interests and other people's needs above their own. And we see that in play in 1 Samuel chapter number 3. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 3, it begins to show us uh, the king or the leader that we truly need. Now, remember in 1 Samuel, Israel is looking for a king. They've gone to God and they say, God, we want a king. And so God eventually gives them a king. But 1 Samuel 3 starts to show them the type of king. Here's the type of leader that we need to open up with. Now, of course, God was supposed to be Israel's king. He was their protector. He was their provider. He was their leader. But they had begun to not trust him. They wanted an earthly king instead. They wanted someone they could could look at and could go to and could talk to and someone who they could see in battle fighting for them. They wanted to be like every other nation in the world. Now, the first 16 chapters of 1 Samuel, they, they set up this contrast between the king that Israel thinks they want and the true king that they really need. Now, through Hannah, we looked at her last week, God showed them that whatever king they had was never going to be their, their true source of identity, was never going to be their true source of security and their true source of happiness. Hannah... She looked for those things in a, in a son. Israel was looking for those things in a king. And, and we seek them through other things. Maybe we seek it through, through money or, or status or good looks or a great body or a healthy family or whatever things it is. We, we look for our identity and all these other things. But real identity, real security, and real happiness is found in God alone. Now today... Uh, I want to focus on the kind of shepherd that God wants to provide for his people. And we're going to see the difference between a good shepherd and an abusive shepherd. So look in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. If I can get there. One page over. Nope, that's chapter 3. See, this is why I like pillow mic. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse number 1. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Now Samuel here, of course, she Hannah's son. We saw Hannah's uh, plight last week and how she prayed for a son, and God answered her prayer and gave her a son, and she gave that son back to the temple. That's Samuel. So Samuel now, he's grown up in the temple. He's kind of of ministering age. He's 12, 10 or 11 or 12. He's kind of that age, ready to kind of start out. And so he's ministering in the temple, and he grows up under the direction of the high priest, Eli. Uh, now, the, the Bible here, it shows us that during this time, it is a dark time in the nation of Israel. Now, when we look at it, we say, oh, the word of God was precious. You know, that kind of, when you think of precious, you know, you think of little baby. Think of, you know, little baby bunny rabbits or kittens until they grow into demon cats. 
uh, you know, kittens are cute, cats are evil, uh, or puppies, or, you know, whatever. You know, you, you think of, oh, that's so precious, that's so sweet. That, that's not what the word means. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word is yakar, and it literally means rare. The word of God was rare in this time. God was not speaking to Israel. Look at verse number two. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. So Eli is blind physically. He's aging. His eyesight is going. And so he's blind physically. Eli's physical blindness is kind of a, a mirror of Israel's spiritual blindness. The word of God is rare. People don't care about it. God's not giving any vision. God's not talking to them. The spiritual leaders are blind to the word of God as well. Now, one of the reasons that Israel is so spiritually blind is because of the state of the spiritual leadership in Israel. I want you to turn back to chapter number 2 of 1 Samuel. So maybe one page back, chapter 2. Start reading verse number 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now Eli's sons, they serve under him. He's the high priest. They are priests that serve under him. They are in line to take over when he dies. And Eli's old. These sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are not good men. They are abusive. They are, are, are sleeping with the women who come to the temple to offer sacrifices. They're abusing their power. They're abusing uh, how they can do that. Not only that, in verse 13, it says that they are extorting money from people who come to the, are coming to the temple to offer sacrifices, and they're making them pay more money to them so that they'll do the sacrifice. They're misusing the funds that are given for the temple. Then look at verse number 26. And the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and with men also. So you got a, a stark contrast between what's happening with Eli and his sons and Samuel. They're raised by the same man, but Samuel is obedient to the Lord. He's open to God. And so for as long as there has been ministry, there have been people who have abused their position of power. Uh, leaders who abuse their authority or abuse their position for their own uh, sexual pleasure or their own monetary benefit. Now, Eli isn't that type of leader. Eli's a good man, but he's silent when people under him abuse their position of authority. Look at what happens in verse 31. Behold, the day is come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, and there, shall, uh, and there shall not be an old man in thine house, and thou shalt see the enemy in my habitation, and all the wealth which God shall give Israel. And there shall be not an old man in thine house forever. And the man of thine, whom I shall not cut off from, thine, from mine altar, shall be consumed in thine eyes to grieve thine heart and all the increase 
of thine house shall die in the flowers of their age, and this shall be a sign unto thee that thou shalt come upon two sons on Hophni and Phinehas in one day, and they shall both die of them. And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. So in the middle of the darkness, God's given a warning to Eli, but he also gives a promise. In the middle of this dark time where Israel doesn't care about God, where God's not talking to them, where the spiritual leaders are abusing people and hurting people, during this dark time, God is going to send a faithful, selfless leader to take charge, which brings us back to chapter number 3. So let's look at chapter 3, look at verse number 3. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. Now, ear means before, or not just yet. So what God is telling us here is the, the presence of God is very dim right now. The wickedness of Israel, the apathy of Eli, the wickedness of the priests, the, the presence of God is dim, but it's not gone. There's still a slight flicker. There's still a glimmer of hope. And now Samuel, he sleeps in the room where this, this candle of the presence of the Lord is, right next to the Ark of the Covenant. You know the Ark of the Covenant, you saw it in you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, or the Razor of the Lost Ark, where you know, they open it up and Nazis' faces melt and all that stuff. You know, that's the, that's the Ark of the Covenant. He sleeps next to that thing. So obviously he doesn't get in there because it's, it's the Holy of Holies and he can't go in there and he don't want to open it because, of course, you open it, your face melts and all that. Uh, but he's near there. Um, now, I don't know if you've ever been in a church at night when no one's around, but it's creepy. I've been here at night by myself. It is, it is creepy. Stuff's moving. I mean, you're like, somebody's walking around here. And, you know, no one's walking around, but you hear stuff, you know, groaning and creaking. And, you know, I know it's, it's not a person. It's not a ghost. It, it's probably a raccoon. But uh, that, that'd be scarier to me than a face-to-face with a ghost, face-to-face with a raccoon. Uh, but it, it's creepy here. And I can't imagine sleeping in a temple when it's completely dark and you've got the flicker of the Lord. And, but this is where Samuel sleeps. You know, the, the presence of God is his nightlight. And so he's, he's sleeping there, and he's right to the next, uh, to the room where the presence of God's, where God's presence burned with that candle. Look at verse number four. And the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am, here am I, for thou callest unto me. And he said, I called not, lie, thou, lie down again. And he went and lay down. Now, anyone that's ever raised children knows the feeling of waking up in the middle of the night with the face right there. Dad. Huh? Or no, they no, they never go to mom. But you you wake up and there's a, a little toddler face going, Daddy, I'm there, and it just scares the devil out of you. My kids, they would always come in and they would pass the bathroom, pass April, come to my side of the bed, Dad, I feel sick. I think I'm gonna like, you passed the bathroom on your way to puke on me. Why did you? Now, they've stopped doing that, thankfully. But, you know, you've, if you've ever had kids, you've woken up with a kid just there. Just, and, so, uh, and so that's Eli. He's trying to sleep, and here comes Samuel. What you need, Eli? And, you know, I didn't say anything. Just, just go to bed. Look at verse number 6. And the Lord called again Samuel, and Samuel arose, went to Eli, and he said, Here am I, 
for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. Now, not knowing the Lord in this, this passage does not mean he was not saved. It meant he wasn't yet a prophet. He had not yet been called by God. God hadn't begun to speak to him. Is now. Look at verse number 8. And the Lord called again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the, child, that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of every one that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he, forno- which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that iniquity, the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever, forever. And Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel, and Samuel said, Samuel, my son, and he answered, Here am I. And he said, What is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee, and more also, if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. And Samuel told him everything, told him every wit, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. Now, Eli uh, had a lot of problems as a leader. Uh, again, he was a good guy. He loved God. He tried to follow God, but he, he didn't restrain his children. And God said, because you didn't restrain your kids and because you allowed us to go on, the sins put on you. But one of the, one of the things he didn't have wrong with him, one of the things that he, he w- was good about was he did not ignore God's word. He wanted to know exactly what God had said to Samuel. And that gives us this, this story gives us five lessons that we need to learn from this story. Here's the first lesson we need to learn. Number one, listen to hard truth. If you read the Bible like you're supposed to read the Bible, and I don't mean just, you know, get up and read your, your chapter a day or your chapter in your Psalms and your Proverbs and say, okay, I did it, and boom. I mean, if you read the Bible with an open heart, with a humble conscience, and if you listen to the Bible, be faithfully taught, you're going to hear some things, and you're going to read some things that are going to offend you. They're going to make you mad. That's the way it's supposed to be. If it doesn't, you're not reading the Bible right. You're not reading it with an open heart and humility. If all you get from your Bible reading is God affirming how awesome you are, you're reading the Bible wrong. Because, yeah, God loves you. God thinks a lot of you. But God's got some problems in there as well. Uh, you know, I can make people mad by things I say, by being immature or insensitive or just not thinking. I do it all the time. 
Uh, I did it last week uh, with Danny Wade. Uh, April was in the hallway, and I said, I was joking and said, April, shut up. And it offended Danny. He didn't know I was joking with her. He didn't, I don't tell her to shut up. I did that once, and she threw a phone at me. So I don't do it anymore except jesting. And so, you know, I, I offended Danny. I didn't mean to, but I'm just joking around. Being, so, but look, if I, if, I do, if I say something stupid or immature or I mention something that you don't, that's, and I make you mad, that's one thing. But if I'm preaching the truth of the Bible, it should bother you. The Bible should make you mad sometimes. You know, people today, they get angry when the Bible goes against what they think or what they feel or what they're doing. You know, we're very good at justifying our sin. We're great at it. You know, what's sin for one person is not sin for me. Because, and I was telling Sunday school class, I heard this, this uh, preacher, this, this preacher, I don't think he's a preacher. He was teaching, and he was using Romans, where in Romans, Paul talks about eating meat, and he goes, if meat offered to idols, if eating meat offers to idols offends you or is a sin to you, then don't eat it. But if it's not a sin to someone else, it's not a sin to him. And he, he says in a kind of a roundabout way, you know, you know one, one thing can be sin for you and not sin for someone else. And so this preacher's like, see, sin's subjective. Sin's whatever. You know, if you feel bad about it, then that's fine. That's your sin. But, you know, I can go out and I can, you know, to me it's not a sin to cheat on my wife. And so I don't feel bad about that, so that's not my sin. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul said there's a lot of things where God's given us clear-cut commands. But then there are some things that may bother you. It may offend your conscience. And if it offends your conscience, don't do it. For example, if it offends your conscience to go to the movie theater, and you go to the movie theater because it doesn't bother me and I pester you to go see the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and you come with me, you're like, well, and you know, and you, well preacher says it's not a sin, it's not in the Bible, but, it bothers, but oh well, and you go anyway, that's a sin for you. It's a sin for me making you, but that's your sin. So Paul's saying, look, if it bothers you, then don't do it, and if it bothers, if you know something that bothers someone, don't make them do it, but he's not saying, well, sin's however you feel that day. No, 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 no. Sin is sin. And, you know, our, you know, we say that the Bible is very unclear in places. You ever notice it's always unclear in places that's unpopular in our culture? God's, the Bible's unclear about gender identity. No, it's not. N no. You know, well, well, in the original Hebrew it says, no, in the original Hebrew it says man and woman created he them. Not, not you know, 47 different genders or I think we're up to 387 now. Uh, you know, well, I identify as, you know, I, I've identified as a millionaire for years now. Guess what? I ain't a millionaire. I have tried. I went to the bank and said, I'm, I, I, I identify as a millionaire. Give me money. And they laughed me out of the bank. And uh, so anyway, it doesn't matter what you identify as or what God's made you as. But, you know, God's design for sex and family is clear in Scripture. And look, we got a couple, you know, teenagers or preteens or whatever in here. Y'all going to get to a point where... You know, you're going to think, you're going to think, well, you know what? I love this person. And even maybe, oh, I'm going to marry them one day. Okay, what? no, it's not. No, God said any, any sexual conduct before marriage is a sin. It's an abomination. And we can't do that. So we got to, we can't get, get, uh, get, get, we can't say, well, it's okay for else. God's design for our gender identity is set in scripture. The dangers of Christian nationalism. Now, I've had y'all all on my, on my side. I'm about to make some of you mad here. America is not 
God's favorite country. I hate to tell you. America, you, you, know what, you know what God's favorite country is? Israel. That, those are, those are the, and I've heard people and Christians, and that's why you know, we're coming up in the summertime. Uh, a lot of churches make a big deal about 4th of July. I, we don't because I don't, we're not worshiping America. We're worshiping Jesus. And if you know your Bible, you know in the end times, when God chooses a group of people, to faithfully preach the gospel during the tribulation, he doesn't choose Americans. He chooses Jews to preach the gospel. And you know, people are like, oh, America's the greatest country in the world. Look, I love our country. I am so glad I have the freedom I have to get up here and say, when was it great? When we killed the Indians, when we enslaved the, the, the African Americans? When have we been great? Have we done better than other people? Yeah. But look, we're not. And so I get upset when people push or you know christian kind of they they equate christianity with patriotism as together well we're patriotic so we're christians no 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 god god doesn't care about your country god doesn't care that we're americans god cares that we're believers who want to share the gospel that's what god wants us to do but christian nationalism is is dangerous it be destructive and so our duty you know we got to we got to understand our duties towards the poor, towards the refugee. When our country seeking help, it is our job as God's children to help them any way we can, to do whatever we can to, to feed them, to clothe them, to help them, to protect them. God's commanded us to do that. Our responsibility to protect life in the womb and outside of it. Look, I, again, I'm going to make some of you all mad here. I struggle with the death penalty. I do. A couple reasons. I think it's misused too much. I think people have, have been executed who didn't deserve it. I think people have been railroaded because of it. But also, if I'm going to stand up and say life begins at conception and we are to protect life in the womb, how am I then to say but kill people who, who hurt somebody else? And I know that I know an eye for an eye. I know the Bible. I know it. The tooth for tooth. But if I'm going to be, I'm pro-life for everybody. Now I'm not saying let criminals out. Run, run and muck. Yeah, and, and again, I struggle with it because I think we got to be careful, but I think there are some people who don't need to live, who are so evil we got to get rid of them, and I struggle with that. And if I'm going to be pro-life, i got to be pro-life. Protect all life. Well, what about life that I don't agree with? Doesn't matter. So we got to know our responsibility for those things. We got to know what the Bible says and obey what the Bible says is our responsibility to put God first in our finances and our responsibility to make his kingdom preeminent. See, the Bible is clear in those instances. But usually when people hear something or read something they don't like, we justify it. Well, it doesn't doesn't apply to me. My situation is different. It's okay for me to look at those pornographic websites because my wife is mean to me. Look, if that were the case, I'm not going to say anything else. My wife's perfect to me. Yeah, you are. I'd never have that right. But look, you can't just, well, because I feel this way, I get to do that. No, 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 no. Bible's clear. And it may not be popular, but we are to obey. We need to listen to hard truth. Put yourself where the Word of God is preached without partiality, 
without respect of your feelings. Look, I'm not going to go out of my way to hurt your feelings, but if the Word of God bothers you, I'm doing my job. It's supposed to bother you. If preaching doesn't step on your toes, you're either not listening to it or it's not real preaching. See, you need to hear hard truth. And yet, as a preacher, it is my job to declare the good news of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel comes with some bad news, too, that you were born a rebel, condemned to hell, deserving of hell, headed to hell, but God loved you so much he died for you, rose again to redeem you to God the Father. Now, that's great news, but it comes with bad news. And you need to be offended that, hey, you're a sinner going to hell before you can accept the good news of Jesus died for you. So listen to hard truth. Second thing we need to learn, God seeks surrendered vessels. Every Jewish reader that was reading the story of Samuel's call, they would recognize right off the bat, Samuel is what we would consider second string ministry material. He, you know, he was born in the wrong tribe. Now, priests in this time, again, they were supposed to be born into the tribe of Levi. If you were born in the tribe of Levi and you went into the priesthood, you were kind of first string, you were elite, you were God's chosen people to be the priests. But if you weren't born into the, king, the tribe of Levi, you could take a Nazarite vow where you basically forsook your family, said, I'm no longer part of that family, I'm no longer part of that tribe, I am now part of the tribe of Levi, and you could become kind of an adopted son of the tribe of Levi, but you, you weren't really considered the elite of the priesthood. You were kind of second string. Uh, that was the, the second way. You could never be high priest, because to be high priest, you had to have pure Levi blood. Samuel's mom, the Bible tells us, she would come once a year to give him clothes, which tells us he was not supported by the temple. Other young boys, especially if they're from the tribe of Levi, they would be supported by the temple. The temple would take care of them, provide their clothes, not Samuel, because he's not a Levite. So he's second class. He's, not, he, he's like an unpaid intern here. He's there, he's doing what he's supposed to do, but the tr they're not taking care of him. They kind of look down on him. But he is the one God chose to make the greatest prophet Israel had ever seen. Why? Because God doesn't care about talent. God doesn't care about pedigree. God cares about us surrendering to him. Look at Samuel, when Samuel's response when God says, Samuel, he says, Lord, I'm here. Whatever you need me to do, I'll do. God, whatever you're asking, before you ask it, I'll say yes. That's what God looks for in his servants. Samuel says yes to whatever God wants. Follow God on your terms. You can't follow God on your You can't say, God, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you. Lord, I'll you know, Lord, I'll go to the mission field as long as the mission field's in the Caribbean. That's, that's not what God does for you. Now, God may send you to the Caribbean, but if you're like, God, I'll go to the, I'll go to the mission field if it's in the Caribbean, God's going to send you to, 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 you know, the Arctic. So go witness to the penguins up there. So you can't, you can't tell God how you'll follow. Following God means that you give him total control over everything in your life. He has veto power over your will. 
God wants us to God wants to use us powerfully, like He did Samuel, like He did David. But it starts with surrender. In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this: Christ says, "Give me all of you. I don't want a certain amount of your time, a certain amount of your talent, money, or a certain amount of your work. You, all of you." Or correct the natural self, but to kill it. Half measures will do. I don't want to be only. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me. This whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. See, God wants to do more than just take you to heaven when you die. He wants to do more than just reform you morally. God wants to fill you with himself. He wants to fill you with resurrection power, but it comes through surrendering your entire life to him completely. Third thing we need to see, we need to recognize God's call on your life. Now look, Samuel's experience is unique. Getting woken up in the middle of the night by the voice of God isn't routine. It doesn't happen that way. Samuel is called in a special role that needed special validation. Matter of fact, Samuel is the only person in the Bible ever called by God in this way. Now, look, he called other people in grace. He called Moses through a burning bush. He called Mary through an angel. So he called people in some pretty incredible ways but not everybody's called that way. Samuel's the only person ever called this way, but that doesn't mean that it happens that way for everyone. Every believer has a call on their life, and Samuel shows us how to respond to it. Now, your calling will probably not be as dramatic as Samuel's, but God still has a specific call for you. God has a call for all believers to be the hands and feet of Jesus on earth. The most destructive lie the enemy's ever sown in Christianity is God is only for a select few. The elite are called to serve God. No, every single child of God is called to serve God. You know, only God only called a few in dramatic way like Samuel. He called Samuel that way, Moses, Mary, Paul. They're the only ones that have these dramatic experiences of being called by God. Your job, for a vast majority of us, it doesn't happen that way. But God still has a special call for you. Your job is to figure out what it is. Figure out what God wants you to do while he's calling you to do it. And then surrender to it, just like Samuel did. Now, many believers know the Lord through salvation, but we don't know him like Samuel did. We've not answered his call. So how do you know your calling on your life? Well, there's a couple things I'm going to give you to them. First, first way to know it is saturate your life in the Word of God. As God's priorities become clear in your heart, your role in his kingdom becomes clear as well. But you're never going to know what God wants you to do if you're not listening to him through his word. Second way, talk to God in prayer. You can't know God's will or God's call in your life if you're not talking to God regularly. Third way, practice your gifts. God has given you a special gift. 
something that you're better at than anyone else and you're unique at and you can figure it out, figure out what it is and use it regularly. Uh, the fourth way, involved in church. God speaks. God guides you through his church. Now, when I say get in church, I mean more than just come regularly on Sunday morning. And look, I know I'm saying this, and this week we're, we're having our end-of-year party for all of our growth groups, and summer's coming, and we're going to, you know, so, but here, get involved in the growth group when you kick back up. Get, look, we've got a lot of stuff that needs to go on at this church. You know, I, I know some, of, some people here are really good at playing the guitar and haven't yet joined up on the praise team. I don't want to say who they are, but they're in the sound room. Get involved. <laughs> Do so. Listen to what the preacher says, but get involved in church. Join a growth group. Volunteer to help in the areas we need. Get involved in the mission of the church through prayer and work and giving. Get involved in building the church. Look, we need... We, I was telling you all last week, you know, the church is doing okay financially. We're not struggling or anything. I'll be honest with you. Uh, we're struggling. We need some, some people to show up and step up. And look, we're, we're, we're going to start on Saturday. In the summer, we're going to start knocking doors on Saturdays again. We take the teens out once a month. And we're, but we need y'all's help. You know what some of your greatest gift could be? To go to your neighbor, your friends, your coworker, and say, hey, why don't you come to church with me this week? Well, they may not like it. Well, they may not. They probably won't. That's been my, 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 my experience has been most people don't. You people that do are weird to me. I don't understand it. But invite, invite people to church. Get involved in the church. Help serve in the church. Help clean the church. Help do whatever we can. Get involved in the mission of the church. Way, recognize your special circumstances and experiences. God has written your story in a particular way. Some of, them, some of your stories may have some, some dark times in them. Some of you may have things in your life that have happened that you're ashamed of, that you're embarrassed about. Here's the thing. God has used that to get you where you are, and he wants to use that to be a blessing to other people. The experiences you've had, they enable you to be a testimony to other people. Your struggles, the mistakes you've made, they help you minister to others going through the same things. Circumstances are the doors that God has opened for you. That's how God speaks to you today. And your posture towards God's guidance needs to be the same as Samuel's. Speak, Lord, for I am listening. The answer needs to be yes before you ask the question. If you're a believer, you're called by God. Your primary identity is not wife, husband, mother, whatever. Your primary identity is a child, is a servant of God. Point we want to look at today, fourth thing we need to learn, is Jesus is the greater Samuel. This is the main point of, of Samuel's story. Samuel points us to David who eventually points us to Jesus. Like Samuel, Jesus was born in a dark time spiritually. The Bible says in Samuel's time, the word of God was rare, and there was not many visions. In Jesus' time, God hadn't spoken for 400 years. There's no word of God. There's no visions. It's a dark time spiritually. Like Samuel, Jesus was born uh, in a time when Israel's leaders were power-hungry and abusive. 
like Samuel. Jesus didn't have a pedigree for ministry. He's born in the wrong family, to the wrong location, to the wrong parents. He's not rich. He's not educated. He's not raised in privilege. But like Samuel, he's completely surrendered to the Father. His power didn't come from his talent, but his power came from him being surrendered to the Father's will. Samuel and Jesus were both faithful prophets, speaking the word of God, even when it was unpopular. Samuel's first message was to go to Eli and say, Eli, God told me he's going to kill your sons and take the ark away in one day. He's going to remove the presence of God and kill your sons all in one day. That's a hard message to preach to that audience. Yeah, that's hard to go, to go to Eli and say, hey, Eli, uh, God told me uh, he's done with you. And he chose me instead. But he, he preached it faithfully. Now, Eli took it faithfully. Good, good on Eli. He took it. But Samuel preached the word of God faithfully. Jesus the same way. Go to religious leaders and say, hey, by the way, you're a bunch of vipers. You're like dead men's tombs. You're, just, you're disgusting. You're gross. You're power hungry. And God's mad at you. But he preached, that God, he preached that message to them. They preached the word of God faithfully. Both stayed faithful even when people failed to listen to them. In 1 Samuel 15, Israel, they reject Samuel's word from God. Eventually, they realize they made a mistake and they come back to him and say, Hey, we messed up. We should have listened to you. Our bad. Will you still go to God on our behalf? You know, Samuel says, No, you, you ignored me once. Forget no. Samuel says, it would be a sin for me to have ever stopped praying for you. I'm never going to give up on you. He was faithful to them even when they weren't faithful to God. Jesus, Remember Jesus on the cross? One thief accepts him. The other thief is railing against him. You saved others. Why can't you save us? You, you're a hypocrite. You're a liar, Jesus. You know what Jesus says to him? You're going to see when you die and burn in hell. No, Jesus says, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's faithful to those, even to those who weren't faithful to him. He stayed faithful to us. He bore the wrath of God meant for us because we ignored his truth. We are like a thief on the cross that rejected him, accused him, and mocked him, but Jesus still died for him. Jesus, Samuel was a, a he was an amazing priest, and he prepared for the king, but Jesus was the ultimate prophet, the ultimate high priest, and the ultimate king. He was a faithful shepherd, leader, and protector. He is who we've always earned for. Every other leader is only good if they model themselves after Jesus. Now, sadly, in Christianity, there are, are thousands, if probably more, examples of leaders, leaders who abuse their power, who abuse their position for their own gain and don't care about God. But there are just as many examples of those who model leadership of Jesus, sacrificial leadership. One of the people comes to mind, Lottie Moon, was a, a four-foot-three woman in 1850s. She is the first woman to ever graduate with a master's degree in the South. She was engaged to be married, but she had surrendered her life to go to China and share the gospel, and her fiancé didn't want to go. So she broke off the engagement, and she went as a single lady to China, to one of the most 
the darkest, hardest areas of the country to share the gospel. But she gave her life to those people. During the, the China-Japan War, she stayed while the fighting was raging on and literally stood between persecutors and Chinese believers and stood between them so they would not get killed, boldly proclaiming the gospel. In 1911, there was a famine that ravaged her area of China, and people were starving to that, and she wrote to American, she didn't leave, she stayed and wrote to American pastors pleading with them, begging with them to send resources and money to help take care of their Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ. She gave her life to faithfully serve where God had told her to serve. And now, every year, thousands and thousands of churches take up a yearly offering called the Lottie Moon Offering to help with missions overseas. You know, a lot of Christian leaders fail, but others model their leadership of Jesus. They, they give their lives for people they serve. They're willing to be unpopular as long as they're faithful to the end. That was true of Samuel. That was true of David. But most of all, it's true of Jesus. And the fifth thing this, this lesson, this story teaches us is number five, call out spiritual abuse. Eli wasn't like his sons. He wasn't immoral. He didn't abuse his position. In fact, in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, he hears about what his sons are doing, and he rebukes them for their actions. But that's all he does. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't remove them from authority. He doesn't do anything to keep them from doing what, he, what they were doing. He wasn't courageous enough to do anything about it. He, he's a good guy. But he prioritized family unity over institutional integrity. When it comes to spiritual abuse, silence is as sinful as the actions themselves. Nothing is as damaging to God's kingdom as people who are appointed by God but are abusing their position. But it is equally as damaging for others who would never do those things to keep quiet about them. Abuse is a deadly, serious matter, and silence in the face of it is just as deadly. You know, the way is called is, is very unique, uh, but his calling isn't. The way he is called is, but what God's called him to do is not. Every one of us has a call on our life. Samuel serves as an example to all of us and gives us five things we need to learn. Listen to hard truth from God's word. If it doesn't offend you, either it's not being preached right or you're not receiving it right. The word of God is meant to offend you, to change you, to conform you to his image. Listen to hard truth from God's word and obey it, even if you don't want to hear it. Be a surrendered vessel for God's use. Recognize God's calling on your life. Allow Jesus to be your example in every area of your life and call out abuse when you speak can do those things, if we can learn those lessons, we can have an impact on the kingdom of God just like Samuel did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for the time we have to, to come together. This thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.